Well, here we are. Let's get into the, uh, the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent in this series, what we're looking at, for those of you that maybe come from a tradition where the language of Advent is like, why don't we just call it like Chris- Christmas time? Why is it called Advent? Um, that's a very good question. Advent comes from the Latin word uh, adventus, meaning arrival or coming. When we do use it in English, we normally use it to speak of the arrival of someone uh, notable, a thing or an event that's arriving, that's coming. And we use it here within this weird little group of people called Christians to regularly talk about the season leading up to Christmas. Not just like the week of, but the four Sundays, beginning with, hi, today, today the first Sunday of Advent. Welcome, everyone. And so this uh, pattern of Advent dates back to at least the fourth century. Some historians would say a little bit earlier, but this has been a time when Christians the world over have intentionally set aside these four weeks as a time to enter into the story of Israel as they were awaiting for the arrival, as they were waiting for the coming of the promised Messiah, which was given in the birth of Jesus. And as we do that, we remember our uh, first, that first advent of Jesus, the first arrival, the first coming, the birth of Jesus. And as we enter into that story, we allow it to prime our hearts for our own waiting for the second advent, the second arrival, the second coming, the return of Jesus. When Jesus would come in glory to resurrect this world, to judge the living and the dead, to reunite heaven and earth. This is what Advent was seen as, as you know, life between these two advents. So this is related to the Greek word parousia which shows up throughout the New Testament being written in Greek, that if you were to, you know, translate the Greek of the New Testament into Latin, every time the the biblical authors talk about parousia, they're using the word advent. And when they talk about parousia, it's the word uh, for um, what they would use to talk about two things, the birth of Jesus and his return. They would use the same word to talk about these two different events. So this is my little brain dump of like dictionary of word, what we're talking about when we talk about Advent, because most of us have no basis for, we just, you know, we come out of a very non-denominational church culture, if any at all. And so any language of this is kind of like, I don't know. But the invitation here is to, to actually enter into this season with a deep level of intentionality. Because for most of church history, Advent was as much about celebrating Jesus' past birth as fostering a longing for his future return. And so the season of Advent is a time of reorientation to the churches placed in history. When we come into Advent and we place ourselves between the first and the second, we reorient ourselves to what Fleming Rutledge calls the time between. I think you'll see this on the next slide. Like Advent... This is, this is Advent in like one picture. What we're coming into is we're meant to step in line with the story of Israel looking back while also looking forward for ourselves and to find ourselves in this place between the past birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the sending of his spirit, everything that happened in Jesus' first Advent while we look forward to Jesus' future return, while we look forward to the renewal of all creation, when we look forward to the final defeat of evil. And so we live in the time between. The church, more than just being a thing that we do in like November and December, our whole life as the church is in this space. We live in the tension, the place of the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet fully. And so for generations, this is what Advent has been. Less of the nostalgia, less of the cheery stuff, 
but holding all of that, yes, but in tension with a deep longing for what this world actually needs, more than just consumerism and you buying more stuff. It needs salvation. It needs redemption. It needs the renewal of Jesus returning. And so we are being invited into what we could call living in this space. And the first theme of Advent we're looking at today is the theme of Advent hope. What this place is called, the place of tension between the now and the not yet, this is the biblical language of hope. The Hebrew word for hope, kava, not the Mediterranean place, um, but kava, is, uh, the, it comes from the Hebrew word for a cord or a string. And kava is when you pull that string or that cord tight and the tension that, it, that you feel before it snaps and it releases the tension that was built up. Hope is that feeling of that, the tension. Hope is about waiting. It's about tense expectation. And so Advent hope, the Christian hope, is the experience of tension between these two times. And so what Advent then means is that for followers of Jesus and for those investigating, Advent for those who would call themselves maybe skeptics, Advent gives space for all to name and hold the darkness of the world that we live within while looking forward. It is not, the, like I said, the blanket nostalgia or the cheap optimism of our age or the, sorry, Ted Lasso, like the 10-second memory of a goldfish that we live within. Advent is an invitation to hold the darkness of the world for all that it means while still looking forward to something that's coming in the future. And it needs to be based in something. So today what we're going to be considering is the first Advent theme of hope. And so we're actually going to be reading from two passages today to be able to do this well. The first will be from Psalm 130, if you want to begin to turn your way there. Psalm 130. And the second will be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. So if you want to turn that way and join me in standing, if you're able, once you get there. Psalm 130. In Luke 2.25, I'm doing the same thing right now, holding my place. I have these cool bookmarks and I never use them, but now I am. Okay, Psalm 130, Luke 2, let's pray and then we'll enter into this time. Father, we, we're entering into Advent and entering into the season. Uh, it, it feels like, at least for me, um, not from a place of intention, but I, I feel like the week is just caught up to me and I'm realizing like, oh yeah, it's, it's Christmas time now. Um, it's Advent and that should mean something for me as a follower of Jesus. And yet, uh, and God, so often the busyness and the stress of, of the past week and the vacations and everything that's been going on, uh, it can be so difficult to actually find the intention of what this season is meant to bring. And so I just pray for myself I pray for all of us gathered here that the next few moments would just be a time of us taking a rest from everything in the past week leading up to this, um, taking just a pause on all of the planning that we feel like we have to do in the coming weeks. And would this just be a time of you inviting us into the gift of what you've brought to us and your son Jesus and the hope of what you've given us in his future return. May today just reorient ourselves. I love that language. Just like, a, like the compass, reorienting ourselves to where we are in time and what that means for who we are. And so we pray that you would meet with us today. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. 
Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. And then Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Simeon and Anna are my favorite cast members in the Christmas story. Though they don't show up at the nativity, the story that we just read takes place 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Uh, I mean, we're in February at this point, though if, if Jesus was actually born in Christmas, but that's a teaching for another time. Uh, though they don't show up at the nativity, and, and just think about that. They make a, like what we just read, that's all we get of Simeon and Anna in Luke's gospel. And they don't show up in Matthew, Mark, or John's gospel. They have this brief appearance that is quickly experienced and then they're gone. And yet I'm so captivated by these two. Because in the details that we do have, I so deeply resonate with their story and I so desperately want to be just like them. I mean, consider Simeon. What we know about him from the story is he's an Israelite who has lived the entirety of his long life in what we might call a world falling apart. Something Luke would have assumed the original audience, those reading what he had written, would know all too well. Israel had spent their generations under boot of conquering empire after boot of conquering empire, with Rome being just the latest iteration. And so Simeon, though he has grown up singing and praying psalms of God's reign as king over all of creation, over his coming salvation, Simeon each day would walk out his front door into a world of contradictions. 
He would pray about God as king, and yet his world told him over and over again that Caesar is king, that Rome's reign is supreme. And so every banner that flapped in the wind, each centurion marching the streets of Jerusalem, every neighbor or family member abused once again by the empire, each of these were a reminder. All of them seemed to scream, where is your God? He lived in a world that was falling apart, or at least seemed as though it was falling apart at the seams. You consider that this is, once again, why we resonate so much with Simeon. The past year and what we've seen of what's happened, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, one of the variables of this then leading to the severe famine in Somalia. 90% of Somalia's wheat came from Russia into Ukraine, and so that's not happening any longer. And so most humanitarian aid has also been focused on Europe, and Somalia's had year over years of drought, and so now they're facing one of the worst famines of all time. It's a world falling apart. Here within our own borders, we have a political vitriol and the politicization of everything. With the vitriol plus the politicization of everything, everything is now a means to get angry at everyone about. The now normal occurrence of waking up to hear about another mass shooting, an ongoing pandemic that we've just kind of made our peace with, apartment fires in China this past week, the ongoing questions of inflation and the climate and what we've done to it, the epidemic of homelessness within our own city, a world that's so dark that we can't even watch World Cup soccer without questioning our involvement in the corruption of FIFA and the death of at least 6,500 migrant workers. We can't even enjoy sports. This world is falling apart so much. Similarly, consider Anna. She has lived the entirety of her similarly long life, not, or maybe along with, in a world that's falling apart, in a life that had fallen apart. What we hear about the widow Anna is that her early years were marked with all that she could have asked for, a happy wedding, those first years of marriage, and the dreams of the future life that they would have together. But just seven years in, she loses her husband, and with him, so many, if not all of the hopes and dreams that she had for her life, her family, all of them dashed to pieces, a life that's falling apart. Each morning, she would roll over in her bed to the empty place beside her. It seemed to scream, where is your God? It's been something that many of us have faced within our own lives. The, 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 the destruction that death can bring, the absence of a, a loved one, the absence of a father, many of us in this room today that have lost family members over the past year, or even the ongoing realization of their coming death as it becomes more and more real as we see what age does to our parents. Some of you battling chronic illness, infertility, miscarriages, betrayal and friendships lost, trust that's been broken, marriages that have been split or that have just settled into that empty commitment of just kind of doing life in the same house together. The sickness of a child the loneliness that we face, the depression, loss of work, just the loss of a dream, a life that feels like it's falling apart. Simeon and Anna, like many of us, lived lives, they lived in a world where despair, disappointment, emptiness, apathy, renouncing God, all of these would seem like an excusable response for the suffering and the loss that they faced. And yet Simeon and Anna found an alternative to despair and disappointment, didn't they? Simeon, Luke tells us, he defines him as being what? Righteous and devout or righteous and blameless. This would, um, what Luke's doing here is he's, he's getting us to think back about other characters described as being righteous and blameless or righteous and devout. We're supposed to see Simeon like a, like a new or like someone in the same line as Noah or Moses in the Old Testament. 
someone standing in line with them. His name, Simeon, can be understood to mean he has heard my suffering. Come on. Anna, on the other hand, has been serving God in the temple night and day with fasting and prayer. Anna's age, Luke tells us, is 84, something that Luke highlights as it seems he's trying to say that Anna's age is seven groups of 12, seven 12s, which for those of you that are interested in, in how the biblical authors use numbers, it's this idea of divine completeness. It's seven perfection 12s, you know, the number of Israel as well. It could be that she's like the perfect Israelite is another thing that she's being kind of portrayed as. Her father's name, Phanuel, drawn from the location where Jacob wrestled with God for a promise that he wasn't currently experiencing. Come on. Anna, her name meaning graced or favored. Anna, a prophetess of God's spirit. Simeon, likewise, is, we're told, has the spirit of God on him. He's speaking, the spirit is speaking to Simeon and guiding him. And so in the midst of lives and in a world like Simeon and Anna's, I so deeply resonate with their stories and I so desperately want to be like them. The sort of people that in the midst of lives and a world falling apart were able to find intimacy with the Holy Spirit, able to find a prophetic power in the midst of their lives, able to find righteousness and devout prayer and worship in the midst of it all. And so the question is, how did they get there? If we so desperately, or at least maybe it's just me, want to be like them, my question is, how were they able to find flourishing in the midst of a world and lives that were falling apart? We're told about both of them. Simeon was one looking forward to Israel's consolation, and Anna was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. They got there through hope. The life of righteousness, faithfulness, of worship and prayer, of prophetic power and intimacy with the Holy Spirit were all the fruit of the root of hope. This is what it grew out of for them. Them acknowledging and living into, like I talked about a moment ago, the tension of their lives. And in so doing, that's where all of this grew out of. This is why Simeon and Anna throughout history have served as icons, images, and examples of Advent hope. You'll see behind me just a smattering of a couple with Rembrandt in the middle, but you'll even see representation of how Simeon and Anna have been taken up by multiple different cultures and continents and people groups, seeing them as like little icons and portraits of what the church is. Men and women living in the space between, men and women in the tension between the promises of God and their fulfillment. They've been held as symbols for the life of the church. What does it look like to be the church today? They would see Simeon and Anna as a beautiful example. There's actually, you can't see in some of these, but some of the more Greek Orthodox tradition, when they would do these portraits of Simeon and Anna, you can't really see, but the imagery around them wasn't from a, the Jewish temple where they actually were. The like, geography and the architecture around them was made to look like a church building from their time. And so the idea being is that they've placed Simeon and Anna in the church, not in their normal situation of when they would have lived, as a way of getting those looking at the picture to see this is what the church is all about. It's Simeon and Anna holding Jesus, looking back at the promises that have now been fulfilled, looking forward to the salvation that is to come. And so, man, I, as I was just preparing for us to launch off Advent, I don't think there is a more worthy place than with Simeon and Anna, not only because they're, it's an opportunity to rediscover two characters that have been swept to the side in the modern church, but because they exemplify and invite us into something that has been lost in our age of instant downloads and DoorDash and two-day shipping. 
We have, to use the fancy language, an over-realized eschatology, or to put it more plainly, we have a belief in a divine Amazon Prime, that every and any promise of God ought to be available in all of its fullness within a few weeks at most. And so what happens then is we have been shaped by our world into a spirituality of like microwave spirituality of impatience, which poisons the roots of our soul. And this is why we don't see much of the same fruit and character as we see in Simeon and Anna. They became those people through 84 years of hope. And we can't even last two days. Sue Monk Kidd, an author, she was troubled by her own inability to be patient and still it led her to visit St. Meinrad Arch Abbey. And so she tells the story of um, her interaction with a monk there. This is so good. The monk at St. Meinrad took his hands and placed them on her shoulders and peered straight into her eyes and said, I hope you'll hear what I'm about to tell you. I hope you'll hear it all the way down to your toes. When you're waiting, when you're hoping, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. If you can't be still and wait, if you can't hope, you can't become what God created you to be. Some of the reason why we have such a malnourished spirituality, I believe, within our church is we've been so shaped by a belief that every and any promise of God ought to be given to us right now. We aren't able for our souls to grow up. Because we operate much like my, my two-year-old who everything has to be now when I want it and doesn't grow up. Part of growing up, you know this, is patience. It's delayed gratification. It's committing yourself to something that's hard, not because it's giving anything to you right now, but in the belief of what it will come to give in the future. And this is not just as true with your career or parenting, but with your soul, with your heart. Hope is what the church is meant to live into, and it's where we find our life within it. And so Simeon and Anna serve as these incredible icons in this ministry of waiting. They became images of the life of the church today as a people in the time between. And they embodied what we read from a moment ago, Psalm 130. And so I want to read Psalm 130 again, just the first verse to begin with. But I want you to hear these opening words from this time imagining Simeon and Anna in these words. Because these are the words that they would have sung year over year in the temple with each of Israel's high holidays. As part of the Songs of Ascent, this would have been one of the songs that Simeon and Anna would have sung on the way to the temple on an annual basis. And if history is, is any help here, they most likely prayed this, if not daily, every single Monday and Thursday, and if not every single Monday and Thursday, at least every Sabbath, if not on all of those occasions, multiple times a week. This is kind of what we find in the ancient Jewish prayer liturgies of Simeon and Anna's time. These were, they were in, they were just like saturated in Psalm 130. And so when we wonder how did Simeon and Anna become the people that they were, the kind of people that we see in Luke 2 that we would want to be like, you, you can't miss the work of this prayer in their lives. And so just to read this again, just to picture Simeon and Anna. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Again, as Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. Hope begins in the depths. The song of Simeon and Anna, the prayer of Psalm 130, rises up from the ocean floor. It is the cry that belongs to those who have been caught in the undertow, crashing beneath the waves of what the psalmist here calls the depths. 
It is all those things, the Roman oppression of Simeon's time, the the dead husband of Anna's. It's the place that screams, where is your God? This is where the cry of hope is first uttered from. It is what is rocketed up to the surface by faith in the God who hears our suffering. And so just to begin with Psalm 130 here, Advent hope is not optimism. Like whatever beliefs that we might have about Christmas stories and the things that we've been watching, um, I even just watched the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy uh, holiday special last night. I've got, th- I've got, I've got thoughts. Anyway, um, but it was so interesting to have the whole thing build up to. And I'm, like, I'm not expecting for like a gospel message from like Groot or whatever, but uh, it was so profound to watch that basically the big song and number dance of the whole thing was all about nostalgia. We used to be babies that were cuddled and loved, and somehow that all got muddled, all thanks to Kevin Bacon singing. And I'm not kidding. Um, and. And it was just a profound thing. This is what we perceive in our day and age as what Christmas season is all about. It's about nostalgia. It's about recapturing what was lost as children. And, and, and this is not at all what Advent within the biblical hope is. It's, it's from the depths. Advent hope is the, is the kind of thing that stares deep into the void of this world and with, from within that crushing darkness says help. It doesn't look to some kind of Nostalgia, it looks deeply into the depths. The psalm continues. Lord, verse three, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Here in verse three, the depths, the source of the crying are given their name. They are called iniquity. It's a word that we never use, or when we do, we kind of just see it as a fancy way of saying sin. Iniquity is like the bad things that we do. But in Hebrew, the word that's translated as iniquity is the word avon, which translates, um, is related to the word ava, which means bent or crooked or twisted. Iniquity is about something being bent, crooked, or twisted. So in Psalm 36, the author talks about his back being avad. It's bent over. Or in Lamentations, a road that isn't straight, it's winding all over the place. It's not straight, it's avad, twists and it turns. To say, out of the depths, is this, Lord, if you kept an account, if you kept an account of iniquities, is a way of, thinking about not just our individual acts of sin or transgression, but something that points deeper to the inner, what we might call offness, residing within our world and within us that results in those acts of sin or transgression of whatever you want to call those. Psalm 130 is a cry from the depths of a cosmos that's been plunged into evil, so saturated that it is both out there and in here. It is both individual and collective. It's something that we find within ourselves and out there. Psalm 130 is a cry from the depths that does not look to the evil of the world, the problem of this world, the bentness and the crookedness is simply being that political party, but ours is the salvation of the world. It sees the bentness within all of us. It doesn't look to the uh, migrant worker conditions of Qatar as that's being the issue while we turn our heads to the working conditions within our own country. We think that America is the one that's got it figured out. We don't look at our neighbors as the one that that's what's the problem in the world. We see it within ourselves. Attributed to G.K. Chesterton, the, uh, one of the newspapers in his day put out a, a kind of prompt for writing that was the problem of the world. Like, what is the biggest problem in the world? And it's kind of apocryphal, but the, the story goes that G.K. Chesterton wrote in a letter with just uh, four words. Um, So what is the biggest problem in the world? Dear sir, comma, I am. 
Iniquity is about seeing that what's going on out in the world is not that the primary problem is something that goes through all of our hearts. It is found not just out there, but in here as well, that the line between good and evil is not between us and them. It cuts through my own heart right down the middle. Psalm 130 is the cry that comes out of this place, that iniquity, the offness of this world is both individual and collective, both found within myself and within the world's systems. It is both and. And if you think that I'm reading into this, just slowly read verse three and notice that it says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? Not if you kept an account of my iniquities, not if you kept an account of their iniquities, but just iniquities as a blanket statement as the reality that this world was within. We are all lumped together in the bentness. Our world is crooked because each of us are, and our world is bent because so are we. We all sense this, that something is amiss within our world and our lives, that something is crooked. But what would very few of us have the clarity or maybe the audacity to claim is that the world is a mess and all of us are making it. We are far more comfortable, going back to the politicization of everything, far more comfortable to see the primary problem of the world as being them versus us. And Psalm 130 invites us to see the world is a mess and all of us are making it. We live in a world that screams, where is your God? And each of us have taken our turn with the megaphone as we have screamed who needs him. Fleming Rutledge writes, Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. And this is her repeated phrase, Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. And how great is that darkness? Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And she says, Advent begins with the recognition that human progress is a deception. To return to Simeon and Anna, because maybe it feels like we've lost the plot, I find this line so impactful when we, th- when we bring them back into this. That's something that they would have been praying possibly every single day. If anyone had a seeming reason to call on God for a seemingly more pressing issue, it would likely be them. Whether that's civil oppression or death, it would be these things. And yet Simeon and Anna are both shaped by a prayer that identifies that the true darkness of this world, the true darkness behind the empire and all empires following Rome, the true darkness behind death itself is this thing that Psalm 130 names as iniquity. I'm confident that this shaped Simeon because of the final line in his song. And if you go back to Luke chapter two, the final line in his song is he's there holding the infant Jesus. He praises God for his salvation as what? A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon, who spent his whole life being crushed by his oppressor, holding baby Jesus, looks and says, praise God, revelation, salvation for the Gentiles, the nations, for my enemy, for Rome. 
How did Simeon become the kind of person who was able to celebrate the salvation of his enemy? Someone who had prayed Psalm 30 into the depths of his heart, who believed that the true conquering empire was not Rome, but iniquity, and its reign was found in every single human. And so he was able to hope for not just himself, but even his enemies, the words of of verse four in Psalm 130. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. If iniquity is the name of the depths that we find ourselves within, and it's what the world is drowning within, our only salvation can come from someone who is an outside help. Our only solution to us drowning can be a rescuer who is ungrasped by the darkness. Some of you were on planes just this past week. And what was the whole, we never listened to it anymore. We all have our headphones in. But then when they walk through all the safety things, for those of you that have little kids, when the masks drop, what, do you, what needs to happen first? You have to put yours on first. If all of humanity is drowning in iniquity, it requires someone who's breathing to do the work to bring us out. We will not be saved by one another. We need someone who dives into the depths of iniquity and death to raise us up. Someone who has life in their lungs to breathe it into us. Or in the words of Psalm 130, to forgive our iniquity. You see, if it's iniquity that we're drowning within and not just the empire, then self-help is no help. If it is iniquity that is truly the enemy, then self-pity is death and self-justification is a lie. But if with you there is forgiveness, then there is a source not just for salvation, but as it says, you may be revered, there is worship. How did Simeon and Anna find a life of worshiping? in the midst of being conquered by Rome? How did they find a life of worship and prayer in the midst of being a widow? They understood that the deep salvation that they needed was not simply from the empire, not simply from death or loss, but from iniquity itself. Their hope, their expectation was, but with you there is forgiveness. And over their years, they prayed and sang these words into the place of their confidence that the God of forgiveness had become their sole and only hope. And in doing so, they became Psalm 130 embodied. Their lives became verses five through eight. It says, I wait for the Lord, I wait, and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Like watchmen on the tower, certain of the coming dawn, but awaiting its first rays, Simeon and Anna took their post in the temple with their eyes on the horizon for the Lord. Do you notice in verses five through eight how many times the Lord is repeated? It's just evident for the psalmist that that's where the hope is. It's not in in, in just the Lord's redemption. It's in the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, in him, the Lord. Over and again, the psalmist repeats that, that hope is about those who have stared into the darkness of the abyss, confident in the person and the promises of God. Confident in the person of God, his faithful love and his redemption, that he is the God of abundance. Going back to Psalm 23, the psalmist says, and confident in the promises of it says, I will put my hope in your word, in your redemption. Hope that looks into the darkness can say that there is nothing apart from the person and promises of God that's gonna be able to get us out of this. And so Simeon and Anna in particular had 84 years. 
of confidence staring into a world that screamed, where is your God? And praying Psalm 130 into their confidence, they shouted right back, he's on his way. And then on one seemingly ordinary day, the thing they'd been waiting for, they saw his arrival. Simeon, after years of waiting, now held in his arms that which his life had been lived anticipating. And so he sings, as you promised, my eyes have seen your salvation. My hands have now held your redemption. My arms have cradled your consolation. Jesus, the salvation of God, who was and is God, diving into the depths. The rescuer who dove into the depths of humanity to save us, to pluck us out from what we find ourselves drowning in. The only one ungrasped and untouched by the, the great poison of iniquity within each of us, he took on himself. You see, more than just his birth where he entered into our story, that is what his death is. It is him resuscitating us as he breathes his life into us, as he forgives us of our iniquity by carrying the death of our iniquity on himself in his death on the cross. It's almost as if Simeon saw this coming as he foreshadowed that the child was destined to be a sign opposed and that the soul of his mother would be pierced, as we know, when her son's hands and feet would be on the cross. As I reflect on Simeon this week and in the story here, I just, I, specifically his connection to Psalm 130, I can't help but imagine Simeon looking into Jesus' eyes with tears in his own as he muttered again that prayer that he had prayed over and over again, but with you there is forgiveness. As we begin this Advent season, Simeon and Anna are for us they display for us the hope that we're invited into finding. A hope that won't just last for the next four weeks, but hopefully within each of us over the next 84 years. Like Simeon and Anna, you and I are invited not into nostalgia, not into cheap optimism, and not into a blanket, the best is yet to come, pretending and believing that all of God's promises will be found even within our lifetime. But a tension of trusting God between the present world's darkness and the future glory to come. The invitation is to look back to Jesus' first advent as the source of our confidence in the person of God as we receive and enjoy the forgiveness and the relationship and the intimacy now found in the Holy Spirit while at the same time living within this, this present darkness as we look forward to his return, as we fix our eyes on the horizon, awaiting when he comes to make all things right, when he comes to bring, excuse me, when he comes to bring renewal and justice and life and resurrection to this world. And so this is the invitation of who we're called to be. To be the sort of people that Isaiah called the people who have walked in darkness, who have now seen a great light. To be like Psalm 130 says, the watchmen on the tower, those who have seen the sun's rays breaking up over the horizon, it's light beginning to dawn even while the rest of the world behind us continues to live and sleep in this endless seeming night. We are the community who when the world and even our lives screams, where is your God? We are those who point to the manger of Bethlehem and we say he's right here. He is with us and for us. And then we point to the horizon and we say, and he's on his way. We are the family that carries the fire of redemption, hope out into the world of darkness. 
We are the people of the words of Peter, a living hope, or in the words of Paul, a hope that does not disappoint. We are men and women who from the depths of this world have found forgiveness in him and now with that root of hope blossom into lives of righteousness and devotion and faithfulness and spirit empowerment and prophecy and life and work and like Anna, speaking to all who are waiting for the consolation of this world. We are people of Advent hope. We are the people who live our lives in the tension between the times. We are those awaiting the fulfillment while even now here today finding the sustaining presence of God at work within us. And so this is why, to get really practical for the coming week, for most of church history, Advent was observed as a time of fasting. Willing abstinence from food for a period of time. They understood the practice of fasting as one of the most powerful means we have of habituating our hope, of becoming comfortable with delayed gratification. To realize that hope is as much a gift of the Spirit as a discipline and a muscle you have to work out. And they saw fasting as the way to do that. Because in fasting, we learn how to hold our unmet desires while finding God sustaining us in the midst of it. In fasting, we actually step into the story. If you remember Anna praying and fasting, we partner, we, we join into Anna's example. As she was waiting for the redemption of Israel with fasting and prayer, we wait for the redemption of all creation with our own fasting and prayer. In fasting, we allow our hope to be felt not just as something in our hearts, but with our whole selves. To go back to Sue Monk Kidd's quote, we allow our souls to grow up in fasting. Brenda Jo Wong writes, when we fast, our bodies clamor for what we have willingly forsaken, be it food, comfort, entertainment, or other goods. Rather than responding with indulgence, we can respond with prayer. Lord, hasten to fill the emptiness within me this Christmas, as I know only you can fully satisfy the longings of my soul. With an empty stomach and an expectant heart, the age-old prayer of Israel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, rings with new poignancy and vigor. And so this is the invitation of this season. Uh, for each week, we're gonna add on a little practice that you'll, that you'll spend doing over the next few weeks as we move through Advent. And so here, here's my, my little you know, disclaimer or note. All of the rest of them are gonna be like really happy, cheery. It's like you know, celebration, feasting, like all these really, you know, worshiping and pray, you know, it's like all really fun things. But we're gonna step into one of these things of rejoining with the church, of taking on this season as being one, not just of celebration, but also developing our longing. And so our invitation to our discipleship groups is to enter into Advent as a season of fasting. So the entry point for this is one day a week. And that can be for a, a traditional 12 hours, you know, you eat dinner and then you, you know, skip breakfast, lunch, and then you have dinner again the next day. If that's like, oh my gosh, one meal a day for, for a couple of weeks to allow this to begin to step into this. And so at current series, collectivechurch.com, collectivechurch.com slash current series, if you scroll down, you'll see all, some details you can click through for your discipleship group to discuss alongside the weekly Bible passage this week. Um, so if you want to fast, there's details of, you know, kind of help you through that. And then we also have a reach exercise for those of you that fasting uh, on a weekly basis is a regular rhythm for you. We also have some reach exercises um, for maybe abstaining from one added thing uh, over the season. So there's the practice. There you go. You guys look so excited to fast this year. 
So, and I just, I just probably, as someone who, man, I, I can just tell you, this has been one of those things that is, is take, has been a long time coming for me in stepping into. And I really just came to terms with the fact that in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus assumes three primary practices of his disciples. Prayer, giving to the poor, and fasting. And, and I really, when Jesus teaches, I want to take him seriously. And, if, and I've just found over the weeks and months, fasting does something to you that normal prayer, it, it just, it gets it deeper into your body. And so there's, there's the invitation just to try it out for this season. But let's move um, back into today and just the time of response right now. The invitation of Advent, as I hope you've heard today, is an invitation into a life not of optimism, not of, you know, empty cheerfulness, not into um, what's been called um, uh, toxic positivity, but rather an invitation into the tension of this life. Hope is about entering into the life of this world and the promises of God at the same time. A hope which unflinchingly looks into and names the darkness of our world, our lives, and ourselves, but at the same time is grounded solely in the person and promises of God. Looking back at the redemption that was launched in his birth, Jesus' life, and death, and resurrection, while standing from the same place and looking forward to his renewal of the creation and his return. It's a hope that blossoms with life and light, that we, as we live more deeper into that hope, become righteous and devout like Simeon, like Anna, thanking God and telling everyone that we encounter along the way. And so we're gonna move into a time of response where we just ask, what, what is our hope? What is our waiting? And just invite for the Spirit to speak and to guide us. And so let's pray as we move into that time.